As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. I'm having um I'm having a a small but significant problem. Today's Thursday. We're recording like we always do on Thursday. You're gonna hear if you're listening, you'll hear this on Friday or, or over the weekend or something. But I am get like I am I am I am trapped in a state of feeling like it is Friday today as we record. And it's really messing up a lot of what I'm trying to do. I hope I can like be a decent podcast host today. Is anybody else having this problem? Huge Friday energy. I Very don't know strange. why it's a phantom Friday, a PF hereafter. This, <laughs> this happens sometimes. I don't know why. Some days more than others. Amber, how, how are you feeling today? So anytime someone has a phantom Friday, I just think about <laughs> one of the... Uh, Assistant managing editors on the employment team, Ben James, who likes to call Thursdays Friday Junior. Sure. <laughs> I think yes, of this course. has got that vibe. Yeah, yeah it's a Friday bit. Junior vibe. Yeah, my we're recording two shows a week now, which we're winding down on, and that kind of messes with it. But anyway, I hope uh, uh, I hope we can we can deliver a quality show nonetheless, and I think we can. Well, I think we can because Amber and I had an excellent chat with Vince Sullivan, who is Law 360's senior bankruptcy reporter, about. A weird situation where bankruptcies have dropped off a cliff in the early months of 2021. And, you know, I don't need to tell anyone that that's sort of strange because we are going through a terrible global pandemic. So people really thought that they would surge yeah. uh, and they have dropped off. So we had an interesting talk with Vince about that phenomenon and why it's happening and how long it might keep going. Yeah, that was definitely a great chat. And we also have a couple of other interesting news stories to get to before we, uh, we before we play that that talk with Vince. The first one, I actually want to bring back a little bit of an update on something we've previously discussed on Pro Se, and that's the question of, can artificial intelligence be an inventor? And Virginia Federal Court faced that question and said, inventing is exclusive to human beings. I mean, it's important to clear up stuff like this. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you have the previous episode site uh, when we talked to Ryan Davis about this. This is a couple years ago at this point. Um, but this is this was a pressing question. So, I mean, I'll try and keep my... I'm mostly worried that we <laughs> w- have angered them ahead of the, the singularity. Yeah, um, yeah. By denying maybe them we, IP rights, yes. Right. Maybe we tell them they can be inventors and then just don't let them invent. I don't know. Look, I'm just, I, I, I am trying to curry favor in advance. It's I'm, important I'm, to stay on the right side of this, guys. But yeah. one Virginia district court judge was not scared of the robots or okay. the impending uprising. Um, this Virginia district court judge shut down a suit against the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office by this AI researcher named Stephen Thaler. He sued after the office rejected applications he'd filed seeking patents on inventions he claims were developed by an AI machine that he created. So he made the machine, but he's saying the machine itself is the inventor of these things he wanted to patent. The judge said AI can't be listed in that way, um, citing basically the plain language of the Patent Act. 
And under that law, an inventor is referred to as a, quote, individual. And there's a bunch of court interpretations about what the term individual means. And they all come down saying it means a natural person. So the judge here just pointed out that AI machines or systems are not normally referred to as individuals. So if you just look at that plain language, this doesn't square for her. Are you trying to tell me that we're not doing personhood for algorithms? Is that what we're doing here? <laughs> or, or, I mean, I mean, this is uh, uh, jarring to say the least. I mean, okay, so I, I'm, I'm joking around. But what the uh, what what were some other things that kind of came up in this? Because this was a something of a closely watched issue for the patent bar. What what else was uh, going on here? Yeah. So. In the Virginia court, the judge actually sort of slammed Thaler's argument that allowing AI machines to be inventors will incentivize the development of AI to create new inventions and spur this, you know, golden era of quickly found new discoveries. The mm -hmm. judge basically said, even if that is a goal worth pursuing, and that's debatable too, but even if you want to go that way, it's up to lawmakers and not the courts. So here's the quote from the judge. As technology evolves, there may come a time when artificial intelligence reaches a level of sophistication such that it might satisfy the accepted meaning of inventorship. But that time has not yet arrived, and if it does, it will be up to Congress to decide how, if at all, it wants to expand the scope of patent law. Seems fairly cut and dry. Um, I mean, it, where does this leave us in terms of, I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, it's up to Congress and something courts can't do. Yeah, this leaves, you know, that that bit of it is pretty cut and dry. And we have this conversation on Pro Se all the time where a judge is like, hey, this is just not what judges are supposed to do. That's up to lawmakers kicking it over to them. So that part's pretty clear. But the overall war over whether AI can participate in the patent space in this way still is very much ongoing. So for a long time, every country that had considered patent applications listing AI as an inventor had just rejected them. So that was the USPTO here in America. Patent offices also in the UK and Europe had done the same. But then in July, this same AI researcher, Stephen Thaler, who brought the suit that we're talking about, he got South Africa to grant patents that list AI as the inventor. And he also, a couple weeks later, prevailed in front of an Australian judge that ruled AI can again be the inventor under that country's IP laws. So Thaler is not deterred in the U.S. I think he's kind of buoyed by those wins in other countries. He has said he plans to appeal the district court ruling in Virginia to the federal circuit. So that'll be ongoing in America. His quest also continues in a bunch of other countries. That Australia ruling has been appealed. So he's fighting that. There's appeals pending in the U.K. and in Europe. And Thaler has uh, pending patent applications that list AI's inventors in at least a dozen other patent offices around the world. So this is really this man's crusade to make this happen. And he's pushing in a lot of jurisdictions to see what he can you know, get to stick, depending on the rubrics they use for IP rights. And it's just one more skirmish in this greater war that I think we're all going to be watching. Yes, we will all be watching that. Um, another thing that everybody's sort of um, forced to watch now are a, are a variety of news stories. Look, guys, the, the time has come. We're going to have to talk about ivermectin, the anti-parasitic drug that is sort of, um, uh, I don't know, caught, you know, uh, caught up in a firestorm over uh, people taking it in uh, sort of animal-grade, livestock-grade quantities to treat themselves for COVID-19. Um, eventually, as, all, as most things do, this is spilled into a courtroom, 
Um, and we're going to talk about it a little bit um, because a Texas appeals court just last week basically reversed a lower court order uh, that had required a Houston hospital to administer ivermectin to a sick patient with COVID-19. Um, so there are lots of sort of weird culture war things that go on with this. We're going to keep it sort of within the within. It's, it's actually quite an interesting a legal issue at play over, you know, whether and to what extent courts can direct, uh, can can compel hospitals to administer medicines. It's um, quite interesting. We're going to talk about this Texas case. There's a couple other things to discuss, um, but we should uh, uh, we should get into it. Yeah, let's let's just start with the basic facts here. What what happened? Who who was the person that wanted ivermectin? So this case surrounds. Uh, the illness of a man named Pete Lopez, and he is a 74-year-old Texas man. He was admitted to Memorial Hermann Sugarland Hospital, which is just outside of Houston, uh, He uh, with COVID-19 at the beginning of August. His condition worsened. He was put on a ventilator, and his wife um, had like done some reading about ivermectin and asked doctors there to administer it to him and also actually pertain, uh, obtained a prescription for it from a family doctor. This is all we should state very clearly. Um, in spite of warnings from federal authorities, the CDC and the FDA, that while this is an antiparasitic drug that can be prescribed to animals and humans, these the you know, federal authorities have specifically said it should not be used to treat COVID nineteen. But his wife asked the doctors at this hospital to do it anyway. Now they refused, and she sued to basically force them to do this. Um, and that happened, uh, I think, on on Monday of last week. <laughs> on Friday, she won when there was a a county judge named Rodney Williams ordered the hospital uh, to move ahead with the treatment, and he basically said that Lopez was likely near the end of his life and that the hospital faced no downside from exhausting these treatment options. So the hospital ap appeals this um, like like the, the very next day on Saturday, and they said that the lower judge's order risked um, establishing a very dangerous precedent that they said would, quote, severely undermine the ability of physicians to exercise their professional medical judgment free of micromanagement by the judiciary. You can see the very sensitive issues that arise here when you've got court orders telling medical professionals to administer or not administer certain drugs. Um, and the appeals court uh, immediately, though without comment, um, put a stay on the lower order. So, they, so they, they, they stopped the order saying that they had to administer ivermectin um, and ordered further briefing. Now, we got sort of a an abrupt end to this case, uh, which have now are effectively over because Lopez actually passed away from COVID-19 on Tuesday. So even though that's the end of the, the story, there are there are some sort of lingering issues here. Yeah, it's a sad result in terms of the actual parties involved. But it's an interesting question, this idea of, you know, can a court compel a doctor to prescribe certain medicines to a certain uh, patient, it's it's certainly not something that we see very often. Um, are, th are there any takeaways from from the ruling? I know that there wasn't much of in terms of analysis in the actual opinion, but what can we take away from it? Yeah, I mean, there uh, it's it's a question that's like very alive in the judiciary right now, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but I I did want to note that even though the result, the hospital effectively wins the case. 
Um, they were very troubled by the by the speed with which this like just kind of went through the courts. That the, the the suit was in a, was filed, and then like within five days, it was it was like it was not fully briefed, and they were very very disturbed by the speed with which the judiciary was basically making medical decisions. Here was a quote they made to the appellate court. Quote, it is important not to lose sight of what occurred in this case. An entire lawsuit was effectively filed and decided within a five-day span without reference to and in complete circumvention of the Texas rules of civil procedure. Ms. Lopez was effectively able to obtain the full permanent relief she requested in her petition without relators being given any meaningful opportunity to mount a defense against the mandatory injunctive relief. So that's somewhat procedural. Um, it's, it's, it's entirely procedural, but the reason they're so thorny about procedure is because, um, as you say, Bill, this is we're, 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 we're entering an arena where, where a judge is telling doctors what to, what, what to administer. This is, um, you know, we've talked about how this is unusual for courts to intervene in this way and and require physicians to to prescribe and and give certain treatments. But has this happened anywhere else? Because it seems like this may be bubbling up more since we are in the middle of a pandemic. More than I realized, honestly. I uh, when I was doing some research, I mean, the, the the news stories I read are kind of just in small regional things. But I mean, to just to basically catch everyone up. Uh, there have been district or municipal courts in um, Ohio, Illinois, and New York that have all issued orders ordering hospitals to administer ivermectin to COVID-19 patients in the oh. last like month or, or several weeks. These cases are at various different points. Some have been reversed. Some are still sort of tied up in appeals. But the, um, the wave of these rulings basically... Uh, compelling doctors to administer these th this treatment is definitely starting to raise eyebrows. Um, I came across a post on uh, the Harvard Law School's uh, Bill of Health blog, which covers um, health law, and a uh, very interesting post. Uh, we can uh, probably link to it, uh, which I would encourage ever, uh, everyone to check out. Is this uh, University of Cincinnati law professor Jennifer Bard? She wrote a very long post on the on the issues that arise when you tread into this area of the law. And how there's never quite been a one-to-one -one comparison in what's going on in the courts right now. Obviously, things get tied up in like end-of-life cases, sort of prolonging people who are on feeding tubes and things like that. But this is a little bit different. And she said explicitly in her post, quote, it uh, opens the door to substantial administrative, legal, and ethical chaos. And she wrote a little bit longer, uh, just to kind of underscore the uncharted territory we're in, she wrote, Quote, it is not unusual for patients' families to seek outside advice when told by doctors that a loved one is not getting better while being treated with existing medical care or, more seriously, can no longer benefit from any medical care. What is unusual is for a court to circumvent the medical judgment of the treating physician to administer a course of treatment that, while legal, is vigorously contradicted by the Food and Drug Administration and thought by the vast majority of medical experts to be more harmful than helpful. So this is the kind of case that, you know, if it happened to literally one person who was, um, you know, on their deathbed, it might bubble up in the court and maybe nobody would really notice. But as you say, Amber, we still are at a place where the pandemic is still raging in certain hotspots. And as people sort of try to exhaust options in the era of vaccine hesitancy, um, wouldn't be surprised to see more of this stuff uh, bubble up. As a lawyer, 
Ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. Instead of the surge of bankruptcy activity expected in 2021 amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the number of new cases actually dropped by a third in the midst of an eerie restructuring silence. But bankruptcy experts say it's unlikely to last. Here to chat about it all is Vince Sullivan, Law360's senior bankruptcy beat reporter. Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you here. So uh, get us oriented here because it was a really great story that you wrote, And um, but catch the listeners up on... What have we seen over the last year, maybe two years, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic uh, in terms of bankruptcy activity in sort of a big sense? Sure. So, you know, everybody is kind of familiar with what happened about March 2020. The, the world, for all intents and purposes, came to a grinding halt. And really, that was felt keenly a, a couple of weeks later in the bankruptcy space. Uh, there was a fire hose like stream of insolvency cases, lots and lots of business cases. Uh, chapter 11 cases were, were up at a time when total bankruptcy filings were down. Um, in 2020, for the year, uh, it was actually a lower number of total bankruptcies in 2019, down about 30%, which was the lowest since 1986. Uh, but Chapter 11 business restructurings were up significantly at that time, mainly driven by retail uh, debtors. We saw, you know, storied uh, brands like J.C. Penney and Neiman Marcus, uh, places like J. Crew, uh, just falling into bankruptcy like dominoes in the, in the opening months of the pandemic. Yeah, Vince, I think that all is what I would have expected, that, you know, we have this pandemic that really disrupted everything, especially retailers. And so you would see a lot of those dominoes falling. But I know there's more to it than that, that that big crash didn't continue, especially into this year. Right. So the initial months of the pandemic really exposed a lot of flaws in a lot of businesses. Uh, retail, the retail sector itself had been struggling for a couple of years. Uh, a lot of restructuring people call that the Amazon effect. Your brick and mortar retailers just couldn't compete. Uh, they had high overhead. They had lots of secure debt in the form of leases and rent obligations, employee wages, things of that nature. And when the pandemic hit, their revenue dried up overnight. And that really just exposed all of these deep structural flaws in their business operations. And they just couldn't stay out of bankruptcy. Uh, there were other sectors that were affected, too, in the initial uh, wave of bankruptcy filings. We saw some legacy oil and gas companies fall into bankruptcy as well. Um, but these were not necessarily surprises to anybody. They were companies that were already struggling, and really the pandemic laid bare uh, the problems that they had. Now, in 2021, a lot of bankruptcy professionals expected that to continue, um, rippling out into different industries, but we just haven't seen it. Uh, since the calendar turned to 2021, restructuring work has fallen off of a cliff in all uh, types of restructuring cases, chapter 11s, individual chapter seven, small business cases. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty surprising because it's not like in January of 2021, the pandemic had gone anywhere. Those in fact were some of the worst months that we had. So what has caused this drop off that we've seen uh, in these filings in the new year? 
Sure. There's been a lot of uh, factors that have helped keep companies and people, individuals out of bankruptcy. Uh, the biggest driver uh, that's holding back a lot of bankruptcies are federal relief uh, money. Federal relief money in the form of unemployment benefits have kept people from having to file for bankruptcy. There's been eviction and foreclosure moratoria that have kept people uh, from experiencing the, one of the biggest personal crises that drives a lot of bankruptcies, you know, uh, home foreclosures being evicted from their, from their rented properties. And small businesses have, have gotten a lot of support through the Paycheck Protection Program that's funneled hundreds of billions of dollars into small businesses to help them cover their rent, utility, and employee wages, which again has kept people employed. Um, even in the wake of huge unemployment numbers in the opening of the pandemic, it kind of stabilized and all those benefits have helped prop up people and businesses that would have been struggling. Yeah, and you mentioned in your story a, an interesting sort of downstream effect, right? That all the money being pumped into the economy has led to private solutions, more money being available to these companies to avoid bankruptcy, right? A lot of companies were able to stockpile cash even before the pandemic started and have been riding that liquidity cushion for the last 18 months. Aside from that, lenders are not too keen on foreclosing on assets that they would have to operate themselves in this challenging environment. Uh, because of that, you know, interest rates have been low, money has been almost free, and lenders are much more willing to uh, what restructuring professionals call amend and extend, uh, where they change the terms of, of financing agreements and extend maturity dates, kind of trying to look into a crystal ball for when this is all going to end and revenue is going to be back to normal so that these companies can make their debt service payments. Another factor is the kind of red hot equity markets that we've been seeing where companies out of nowhere, out of the blue with real deep structural problems uh, that were exacerbated by the pandemic, things like AMC theaters were able to raise a billion dollars with new stock issuance in the middle of this pandemic when it didn't look like people were ever going to go back to the movies. Uh, and that's really, really helped a lot of companies uh, be able to restructure out of court avoid bankruptcy, or even if they're in bankruptcy, to kind of uh, be able to pivot to a much more lucrative restructuring plan like we saw in the uh, Hertz Global uh, rental car case. This all sounds pretty positive on the face of it. I mean, the government programs you were talking about a little bit ago were designed to keep companies and people afloat during this tough time. And these prevailing winds of the market have also served to keep businesses open. But you also read about how this sort of eerie silence in restructuring and bankruptcies doesn't look like it's going to last forever. At least that's not what the experts are telling you. Tell us more about what we expect next. The wind is kind of coming out of the sails of a lot of these relief uh, programs. We've seen the federal unemployment benefits pulled back in the last uh, few days. Eviction and foreclosure moratoria have been pulled back as well in recent weeks. So there's going to be more distress. Uh, there's always distress in the economy. It, it, it can be industry specific at times. And restructuring professionals are telling me that it's going to be the same thing. We're going to have lots of individual people who all of a sudden are saddled again with their debt obligations and payments that they have to make. And they're going to fall into bankruptcy. There's just no avoiding it. But on the business side, uh, there's going to be some industries that just aren't going to be able to stay afloat any longer. 
um, with the advent of new variants of COVID-19 and, and the reimposition of mandates and business restrictions, uh, we're going to see hospitality and travel sectors particularly affected. Uh, just this week, we saw Philippine Airlines, one of the largest uh, trans-Asian air carriers, uh, fall into bankruptcy. And they said in their initial filing papers that we just couldn't ride it out anymore. Uh, we had a really great 2019. We were you know, in a great position in 2020, and our business just evaporated overnight, and we just haven't been able to get it back. And they're talking about you know, reducing their fleet size, having uh, restructuring agreements with their aircraft lessors, and it looks like they'll be able to successfully restructure, but I think that's kind of one of the vanguards of, of the next wave of bankruptcies that we're going to see. Awesome. Well, thanks, Vince. Um, it's been a really interesting chat. Um, obviously, we end on sort of a lower note, but um, uh, really interesting sort of phenomenon that we were talking about here. Thanks for coming on and joining us. Thank you very much for having me. our show is something offbeat and Alex I think you've got something for us today yeah you know I I don't even think it counts as pulling back the curtain I think if you if anybody who's listening also reads law 360 it's no secret uh we don't we don't publish a newsletter during the time between Christmas and the new year basically um get a skeleton crew on on call if anything crazy happens but as a matter of course we don't and we saw uh, a very interesting order come out of a California court in uh, this huge uh, uh, opioid uh, multi-district litigation where a judge literally decree issued an order uh, saying that this is obviously an MDL is a million attorneys on the case, basically ordering the senior partners on the case not to have associates work over the holiday break on the case. <laughs> I was very I, I, I was struck by this. So I love that year-end break that we have at Law360. It's so restorative. You come back fresh in the new year, so it's really great. Um, attorneys notoriously work through all sorts of weekends, holidays, special events. And so I feel like this judge has just become a folk hero. I mean, it really <laughs> yes. feels like an unusual order, even though it seems like just such a common-sense, humane thing. This feels like the judicial equivalent of an episode of Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just good vibes verberating throughout, right. throughout the court in, a, in an opioid litigation of all places. Um, yeah, mm. but um, yeah. So what, what you need to know is that this is a, this is an MDL, is a multi district litigation that's playing out in California, and it deals with um, it's it's against McKinsey and Company, the consultancy firm over their role in helping drug companies market uh, uh, what the plaintiffs say are, would, is uh, deceptively market these drugs. And uh, just during a status conference last week, the judge who's overseeing the MDL is uh, Judge Charles Breyer, who is the brother uh, of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, oh, yeah. That's two great. brothers who are judges. You never yeah. hear about this. This no, is crazy. No. Uh, no. 
Um, <laughs> he was kind of um, uh, this. This is uh, coming to me from above the law. This was just done on um, just uh, there, there wasn't even a written order on this. It's just on this conference call. Judge Breyer said he quote didn't want to ruin a lot of Christmas vacations for a lot of people. He moved up a, a filing deadline basically for uh, for the motion to dismiss the case from January fourteenth, obviously after the holidays, to December tenth ahead of the time. And he uh, he just he kind of held court and said uh, uh, sort of specifically called out uh, the, the the partners here and 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 ordered them to d- do the right thing in his mind. He said quote. Partners, you spend your lives as you wish, but associates who must take your direction and must please you and must obey your directions, they're at your bidding. Well, not for the week of December 19th through 26th in this litigation. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the reason why, but the reason why we initially implemented that week off is that nothing happens in court during that time. It is a complete dead zone. So, you know, yes. there's a little bit of... Uh, I mean, people don't do a whole lot of legal filing during that time anyhow, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. They don't do a lot of legal filing. I mean, I think he's looking out for them not doing like yes. preparation on the documents as, yeah. Um, which is just interesting that he literally said um, partners can do it. Part, you can do whatever you want. I'm, I'm commanding you or I'm ordering you not to have your associates work. Which is kind of interesting, to just even from a legal standpoint. He even acknowledged, he's like, I guess you could appeal this, uh, you know, for, for, <laughs> I, yeah. for whatever that's worth. I would say so. I think he, ca- I, I don't know that this is within the purview of, of a federal judge. I know, it is interesting, <laughs> right? Like, I, well, I mean, I don't even know if anything will come of it, but it is kind of an interesting thing for him to decide to order. I kind of love the idea that, you know, there's few people in the legal system that have the kind of power, even if it's not technically in their purview, to suggest something like this that the the lawyers involved will probably stick to. Like, it's kind of nice to see the judge wielding that power for for good. Yeah, there uh, on on that same call, the uh, one of the plaintiffs' counsel is uh, Elizabeth Cabrazer, who's a, a, everyone on the plaintiffs' side knows her. She's a partner at Leaf Cabrazer, um, who's a sort of legendary uh, plaintiffs' firm, uh, and she was all for the idea. She said, "quote." I hope this order does become precedential. It's very wise, and the nation's associates would thank you. Um, so they get uh, they get a breather. Though I do, though I couldn't help but notice this does cut both ways because he also uh, I don't know mowed down their deadline by about three and a half weeks. So uh, they're going to have to get cracking even a little bit faster than they might have otherwise. But, Wrecking uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> different different holiday. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting one to uh, to talk about today. Okay, well, we too are going to take a break from Pro Se, at least until next week. Um, (laughs) Thanks for being with me today, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. I will see you then. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Vince Sullivan, and contributing reporters, Michelle Cassidy and Ryan Davis. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se... Go ahead and leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can more easily find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. See you next week.